You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Hello, everyone. Once again, thank you so much for joining us for our online service this morning. Today, we'll be going through our second last message in our sermon series on the full armor. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll get to conclude this series in person. That's right. Finally, after over three months of meeting online, we're incredibly thankful and beyond excited to announce that we'll finally get to meet together again next Sunday. So we hope to see you there. Obviously, with the government restrictions in place, our services are going to look a little different though, so please refer to our website or our Facebook page or sign up for our e-bulletin for more information about what to expect. And I should also mention that for those of you who have recently joined with us online over these past few months, we're so glad that you did. And if you're joining with us online and you're out of town or or even for those who are just unable to join us in person for whatever reason, we haven't forgotten about you, which is why we'll also be attempting to live stream our services as well. So you'll still be able to join with us in that way. And we hope that you can. Ultimately, though, even as we anticipate meeting together and, and we thank God for that, let's also, rem- let's also remember to give him thanks for sustaining us and carrying us through this time. He's been so faithful to us and, and we're so grateful uh, for what he's doing in us and, and for what he's, he's uh, allowed us to do even during this time in meeting online and, and still maintaining contact with one another. And so we just thank him for that. All right, so let's get to the message. And I may have mentioned once or twice during this series on the full armor of God that I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to historical fiction and pretty much anything having to do with the medieval fantasy genre. Thankfully for you, I'm, I'm not going to go too much into that nerdy stuff today. Well, I mean, I'll get into it a little bit and... You know, now that I think about it, a little bit for me might feel like a lot for some of you. So I apologize in advance if I get a little too nerdy for you in the next couple of minutes, but it's going to be worth it. I promise. Um, So let's just dive into the nerdy stuff. Uh, Anyways, one of the common things that I've noticed in the fantasy genre, whether in books or or movies or whatever, is, is how much importance is usually placed on the sword in which the hero uses. Or in some cases, it might be an axe or a hammer or whatever. Sometimes the the sword is so important, though, that in many stories and and myths of legend, it actually has a name and is is almost like a character unto itself. So from King Arthur to Lord of the Rings to Star Wars even, it's quite often the sword which gives the hero their status as the chosen one. And, and, And in these stories, it's usually the only weapon capable or powerful enough to bring down the evil enemy which they've been tasked to destroy. And I'm not sure if you're feeling me, so I'm going to give you some examples. Uh, First example, in The Lord of the Rings, it's Aragorn's sword, which is named Andural, which was reforged by the elves of Rivendell, and we all know that, which uh, this sword elevated him to his rightful status of king and gave him the authority to lead an army in overthrowing the evil armies of Mordor. And since we're talking Middle-earth, In The Hobbit, it was Bilbo's sword, Sting, which warned and revealed to him when an enemy was nearby, when it it glowed blue. Or 
Think of the classic series by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One of the unlikely heroes in the story named Peter Pevensey, he's given a sword made perfectly for him, which bore the name Rindon. And he ends up needing it in defense against Mogram the wolf, who is sent by the evil white witch to kill him. After that moment, Peter is then knighted by Aslan as Sir Peter Wolfsbane and is then promoted as the general of Aslan's army. Or another example, like in my youngest son's favorite video game and book series, The Legend of Zelda, the main character in that series, Link, must wield the master sword in order to take down the forces of darkness. And if you have no idea who any of these characters are, surely you must have heard of the sword in the stone in which a lowly nobody named Arthur finds he's the only one in the land able to pull the sword Excalibur from the stone. And this event not only marked him as the true king of Britain, but the sword also gave him the power to vanquish the evil forces which had taken control in the land. Anyways, you might be thinking, why am I telling you all of this? Why would I risk my reputation as a really cool guy in this way? Well, because in all of these stories, the common factor at play is that none of the heroes would have been able to accomplish their quest or rise up to their potential or even stand up against and defeat their evil foes without their unique sword. The sword was integral to their destiny, to their power, and to their victory. And in a similar but very real way, as we live and persevere in our calling as Christians to bring the light of Christ into the darkness, we also require a perfect and unique sword for the task. Without it, we're powerless in this fight. So it's integral for us, especially as we struggle against, as it says in Ephesians 6.12, against the spiritual forces of this present darkness. And so what we find in the passage this morning is that the sword in which we need to take up and wield in order to stand firm in this spiritual battle is the sword of the Spirit. Among all the pieces of the armor of God we've been learning about, this is the only piece That's meant not only for defense, but also for striking back at the enemy. Whereas the rest of the pieces of the full armor of God are meant for strictly for defense, for defending us, the sword is both a defensive and offensive weapon. And and according to my commentaries, the word used for sword translates as short sword and is most likely referencing a Roman guard's gladius short sword. And I have a picture of that for for you. So this short sword would be hung on the soldier's belt in a a sheath and, of course, was meant to be used in in close quarters combat. And make no mistake, there, there are often moments in our lives and throughout our days when, when we do and will come to face-to-face with temptation and sin, when it feels like we're entering into close quarters combat with the devil himself. As theologian Ian Duguid writes, if we are going to defeat our enemies and our temptations, and seek to live fruitful, holy lives, then we will need to get up close and personal and set to work with the sword of the Spirit. Like ancient warfare, the struggle for sanctification is a fierce, messy, and intensely personal affair. 
So, for example, whether it's the in- internal strug- struggle between, say, chasing after holiness with God or, or clicking on that certain website link, or, or whether it's times when you're feeling such rage and, and bitterness in your hearts against someone who's wronged you and, and you're finding it difficult to forgive as Christ has forgiven us, or, or whether it's a battle in our hearts between being greedy or, or generous or between being judgmental instead of impartial and full of grace— Right? Whatever it is, sometimes resisting the temptation to sin is a battle and it can feel like hand-to-hand combat, like a, like, a, like, a, like a struggle within our own homes, within our very heart and soul. As God warned Cain, Cain in, in Genesis 4.17, he says, To him, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Satan desires you. Sin desires you. It's often near, waiting to strike and turn you away from God. It's crouching at your door. 1 Peter 5.8 says it like this, Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. And so again, the, the struggle against sin in our hearts and against the prince of the power of the air can often get up close and personal. And to be perfectly blunt, being pitted in a wrestling match against a lion, a devouring lion, means we're pretty much toast on our own. But yet the good news is that we've been given the power of God to rule over this devouring lion. We've been given the one and only weapon which can smite him and send him crawling back to the depths of hell where he belongs, licking his wounds in defeat. We've been given the sword of the Spirit, which Paul reminds us is the word of God. In writing this letter, Paul would have been specifically referring to the Old Testament scriptures as well as the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think we can argue that the metaphor is applicable for the whole Bible that we have today. We've been given the written word of God, which is described in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, as breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, it's common to think of our, our Bible as, as a tool for learning about Jesus and, and growing in our relationship with God, which is good. But how many of us ever think of it as a weapon? I mean, historically, we've seen that many people have used it wrongfully as a type of weapon in order to control or coerce others. But that's a blatant misuse of the Word of God. Rather, this is meant to be a weapon that's set not, not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness who are formed against God and against those who follow him. We're meant to pick this thing up and whack the devil over the head with it in the name of Jesus. Not literally, of course, but literally speaking, absolutely. To be clear, again, our sword is not an actual sword. It's better. It's the spirit-breathed word of God. In fact, this is the very same sort of the spirit which the book of Revelation describes as as coming out of the mouth of Jesus when he returns again at the end of days to finally crush evil once and for all. Let me read that because it's intense. Revelation 1, 16 to 18. 
describes Jesus, and it says, He held in his right hand seven stars, and a sharp, double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun shining at its brightest. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, now I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. And then in Revelation 19.15, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's intense. And through Christ in us, we get to wield that sword. And that's right. This also means we don't need to go on a quest to find this sword or reforge it or pull it out of a stone or anything like that. But just like the rest of the armor of God, this is a sword which Jesus already wielded for us. He came to reveal the living word to us. And now he freely gives it to those who follow after him to use in his name as well until he comes again and uses it one more final time. Jesus even shows us how to use it. Specifically, near the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is baptized and and filled with the Holy Spirit. Then, Then he's led by that very same spirit into the desert to fast for 40 days and nights. And and during that period, he's tempted three times by Satan in the very same manner in which the people of Israel were tempted in the wilderness. But unlike them, Jesus is faithful and doesn't fail. And in fact, you guys have already heard this story during the the kids' message. Pastor Blair already shared this with us. And we see that Jesus is actually armed with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And so each time Satan tempts him, sometimes even by twisting Scripture, Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and wielding the knowledge of the Word, because he is the Word made flesh, he turns aside these temptations by declaring, by speaking the truth of God's Word. So let's go over that again. First, Satan says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And then next, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and says, If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down, and the angels will catch you. And then finally, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and says, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. We need to understand that this is also how Satan tempts us to turn from God. He tempts us by offering good ends by the wrong means. He wants us to take the easy path for ourselves or or to trust in him. And he'll even misquote scripture to to trip us up. Satan's sword is a twisted version of the sword of the spirit, but it's powerless against it. As we see during Jesus' temptation in the desert, every time he's tempted by Satan, he puts the sword of the Spirit to work, effectively countering the strikes of the enemy. As Duguid again describes it, each time Jesus was tempted, he got out his sword, and three times he quoted the Bible to the devil. Turn these stones into bread? The Bible says man does not live by bread alone. 
throw myself down from the temple? The Bible says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Worship you? The Bible says it is the Lord your God you shall fear. So Jesus resisted the devil by speaking the truth of Scripture. And this is how we're also meant to resist the devil and temptation. This is how we wield the sword of the Spirit. And it's not complicated, but it's incredibly powerful. We're meant to swing Scripture into the face of our enemy and even proclaim it in our own hearts. To use the sword is to speak and proclaim what the Bible says. Like, say we're tempted to steal. We can resist that temptation by proclaiming to ourselves the word which says, you shall not steal. And when we're tempted to cheat on our spouse, maybe the the Bible speaks a better word to us. You shall love your wife like Christ loved the church and you shall not commit adultery. When we're tempted by sin to ignore our neighbor's cry for help, we can proclaim, it is said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we're tempted by the devil or our own lusts to follow the ways of the world, we can proclaim the word of God, which says, he who is within me is greater than he who is within the world. To wield the sword is to practice the words of the psalmist. He writes in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I think sometimes, though, we, we forget to strap on our sword and we try to resist sin by human terms. Right? We use a fake or, or a replica sword that we've made ourselves out of maybe pieces of our, our shame or our fear of being caught. And we take that together and we try to resist temptation by saying things like, oh, I probably shouldn't do this because what would so-and-so think? Or what if people at church find out? Or I'll feel bad later if I do this, so maybe I shouldn't, right? We, we say things like that, but those are feeble attempts at resisting sin. Those are feeble attempts at striking back at the enemy, and eventually he'll overpower us. The only defensive and offensive way to both resist and strike back at Satan at the same time is through the word of God. Because it's only the Word who became flesh, Jesus Christ, who has already won the victory over evil through his death and resurrection. And so through him, we get to take up the sword of the Spirit and proclaim and walk in that victory. But to this end, I have three points now that I want to make quickly. First of all, this means we need to practice our sword skills, our swordsmanship if you will. You know, when I was a kid, I, I loved to sword fight with my friends, whether, whether we were pretending to be knights of the round table or pirates or, or Jedi. Didn't matter. We'd, we'd grab our plastic swords and we'd, we'd get right into it, right? But inevitably, after swinging our swords at each other, you know, to and fro, one of us would accidentally hit the other one in the hand or the face or something, and instantly we turn from imaginary enemies to real ones. Like, ow, geez, you hit me right in the hand. That hurts. I'm telling, right? You know how it goes. The truth is, as, as kids, we'd, we'd, we'd often get hurt swinging swords around at each other because we actually didn't know how to use them. We had no formal or even informal sword training. We just had our imaginations. We pretended we knew what we were doing. And and in the same way, if, if we don't actually dig into our word, if we're not ready to make a defense for what we believe, if, if the truth isn't being written in, on our hearts and in our minds daily, if we're not allowing the word to change us, 
and mold us, we're going to get hurt. I've read some material recently and over the last couple of years by certain popular atheists, and and I've found that sometimes they they cherry-pick verses and they quote scripture out of context with, with the intention of painting it in a negative light. See, look at this verse. God's a monster. Or, see, look at that verse. God thinks you're a monster. Right? And, and this is exactly how Satan operates. And if we're not steeped in the knowledge of the word and in the truth, we'll be easily tricked by lies like that. Or, or, or we'll also easily give in to temptation. As we've been talking about, Satan whispers in your ear, that's not so bad. Did God really say that? Isn't he loving regardless, right? We need the word to to have discernment in these things. And it's no coincidence that, that Paul starts this passage about the full armor of God with the belt of truth, and then he ends this passage with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so we see truth is the first and last defense against the liar and accuser. And in the imagery of the armor, the the sword of the spirit would actually be strapped and sheathed to the belt of truth. They go together. We need to be steeped in truth so that we can wield the truth. So, practice your sword. Read your Bible. Meditate on it. Study it with others and, and share with others what you're learning. Memorize some of it and pray it. So that in the day of evil or in times of temptation and doubt, you'll be able to not only discern the enemy's lies, but you'll also be able to strike them down with the truth that lives in you. Hebrews eleven twelve says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We must allow that sword to have its effect in us first, to sharpen our hearts and our minds and and our spirit before we can even begin to use it effectively against the enemy. It seems obvious, right? But the more we know scripture and the more we understand it deeply, the better we'll be able to use it and speak it against the enemy. Secondly, though, we need to understand that it's, it's not simply having knowledge of the Bible alone, which gives us power of the enemy, but rather it's by the power of Jesus through the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us the power to use the word effectively. There's, there's a story in the book of Acts where a group of Jewish exorcists from Ephesus witness the Apostle Paul successfully performing miracles in the name of Jesus. And so they decide to try their hand at it as well within their line of business. And it goes very poorly for them. Let's, let's just read that really quick because it's, it's kind of funny. Acts 19, 13 to 16, it says, Now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that that Paul preaches. So seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this, and the evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them, so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. 
if it wasn't so scary, it probably would have been a funny sight seeing those guys running out of the house naked and screaming. But the, the point of the story is that demons know who Jesus is. They know Scripture. It even says in the letter of James that demons even believe the truth about who God is, and they shudder at it. So just as the, as the sons of Sceva learned, we, we can't just spout out Scripture verses or proclaim the name of Jesus without truly knowing him first. We, we can't expect that to work. Knowledge itself won't chase away our temptations or our demons. This isn't like a Hollywood movie where we can run around chasing vampires with a wooden cross in one hand and a Bible in the other. Without the power of God at work within us, without Christ in us, the words become like a flimsy sword and, often mis- and are often misused in the wrong hands. In other words, knowing the truth is important, but it's only part of it. First of all, we need to know and experience salvation through Jesus. And secondly, we need to be filled with his spirit. It's Jesus who the demons are afraid of. He's the one who's rendered them impotent through the cross. And this is why Jesus told his disciples not to do anything that he had commanded them to do, which is to make disciples of all nations, right? Until the spirit came upon them. Jesus told them that that it was the Holy Spirit, the helper, who would come in and lead them into all truth. In fact, Jesus calls him the spirit of truth who would also empower them to walk with the authority of Christ and in the victory of his death and resurrection so that they could proclaim the gospel, so they could proclaim the truth with boldness and power. It's the Spirit of God then who not only helps us understand God's word, but helps us apply it properly and effectively. And the good news is that when we're saved and baptized into Christ, we're filled with the same Spirit, as Pastor Brad reminded us last week. So before you go into the Word, and and especially in times of temptation, pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to lead you into that truth, to give you understanding of the Word, and, and to bring to light particular verses as you need them. Also ask Him to empower you to speak them in Jesus' name. And finally then, my third point this morning before we close, is that the most effective way to take the sword of the Spirit to the enemy is by proclaiming the Word of God to those who are in Satan's grip. To bring the light into darkness. That's what we've been given the sword to do. And this isn't just my job as a pastor. It's yours too. We've all been given the one and only weapon capable of doing this. So let's take it off our shelves and use it. Let's proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who have not yet received it. Let's share it with the lost and and to the broken, to our neighbors and to our family members. Because each and every time someone hears the gospel and believes it by faith and finds salvation in Jesus, this is what happened. Heaven rejoices and Satan squirms in pain. Every time we proclaim or sing or acknowledge the word of God and the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, whether to our own hearts or to others, we're not only successfully parrying the strikes of our true enemy, we're striking him down to size. We're reminding him of Jesus' victory. So strap on the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Ultimately, seek Jesus and dig into his word. 
Again, because realistically, this is all about living in the power of Christ, who himself is able to sympathize with us in our weakness and help us in our temptations, because even though he suffered and was tempted as we were, he was still without sin. He used the sword masterfully and perfectly. And because of this, by his grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit at work in us, we get to walk in that victory and truth and power. We get to wield his word as a sword. Finally then, as it says in Colossians 3:16 to 17, let this be our prayer this morning. As it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.